What's up, Bikerumer fans? Recently, I had a chance to meet with BMC and Red Bull's advanced technology team to learn about and ride the new Team Machine R, a top-level, lightweight, aero road racing bike. But I left with questions. So in this episode, I have Stefan Christ from the BMC product team and Rob Gray, technical director at Red Bull Advanced Technologies, on board to discuss how they applied F1 technologies to a bike, what they learned about aerodynamics, and a whole lot more. We even touch on drive-by-wire systems and the potential for wireless or electronic brakes on a bike. If you geek out on details or are just curious about why an energy drink brand would be involved in high-tech CFD and composites, this one should scratch that itch nicely. Let's go. Hi, Robin Stefan. Welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I figure I would just let you both introduce yourselves, name and title real quick, just so we, everybody knows whose voice is whose, and then we'll dive in. Sure. So Rob Gray from Red Bull Advanced Technologies, where I'm Technical Director. I'm Stefan Christ, Head of R&D at the BMC in Switzerland. Right on. So I wanted to kind of start top level just because I've always sort of wondered, you know, as I used to actually be in the industry, the energy drink industry, and now obviously the bike industry and and journalism and Red Bull has been in all of those things. So top level, like what is the relationship between, you know, Red Bull, the energy drink and Arbat, which is Red Bull Advanced Technologies, and kind of all the other disparate divisions under the brand umbrella? Sure. So uh, Red Bull obviously own Red Bull Racing, the Formula One team. And Arbat, Red Bull Advanced Technologies, was spun out of the Formula One team back in uh, about 2014 when Dietrich Mateschitz expressed the desire to see some of the fantastic engineering outside of um, the Formula One industry. So our mission was really set as, you know, commercialize some of that technology, use it on some other internal projects. And so we're working on everything from bikes for BMC through to aerodynamics for KTM on the MotoGP bikes, uh, the Alinghi Red Bull Racing America's Cup team. So really big sort of portfolio that we basically apply any Formula One technology to that we can think of. Right on. And are you, you know, as technical director, are you focused on one particular industry or do you oversee all of those? I oversee all of them. So I look after the whole of the Arbat uh, company. It was a division. It's now a separate company. And uh, yeah, so I'm over all of the projects. That's exciting. Do you have a favorite, favorite industry? Um. No, I can't. It's hard, it's hard to pick. I mean, I love the bike industry because I've always been a cyclist. So that's, you know, I was really pleased when we started working with BMC because that's definitely ticks, ticks a box for me personally. But then I also, I've sailed boats in the past. So I love the, love the Alinghi, uh, Red Bull Racing side. And, you know, any competition is also good. So MotoGP is fantastic because, they, you know, I come from a Formula One background. I spent 18 years in F1 before coming to run the advanced tech side. So anything where racing is involved is always good because it, it, um, it reminds people where we've come from and pushes the uh, pace forward. Yeah. What are Arbat's core capabilities? So we really have a small version of the, all of the engineering capabilities that you have in the Formula One team. So we have composites and structural analysis. We have mechanical design. We have aerodynamics. We have vehicle performance and simulation, control systems and software, and electrical and electronic design. And, and then we're also building a supply chain capability so we can manufacture parts ourselves. And then we lean on the Formula One team. So we use a lot of the Formula One facilities, whether that be R&D test rigs or um, computer servers for solving CFD problems. It's, it's all, of the, all of the Formula One technology. The production side of it is fascinating to me because I, I imagine, like, are we maybe going to see like Red Bull or Arbat products in the future? Like, will you try and sell into your own brand and commercialize stuff? Well, we're working on a hypercar 
for the track at the moment that's uh, the RB17. That's going to be a fairly expensive uh, track-only car, so it's um, just over five million five million pounds. And yeah, that will be sold under the RBAT banner. That's incredible. Cool. Not to compete with BMC, but it'd be interesting to see what you do with the bike. Is what we talked about this in a little bit about the the difference between what came out of your lab and then what ended up as the finished product. But let's you know from a looking at F1 and MotoGP and all this stuff like. When you started working with BMC, what were some of the core takeaways that you took from F1 and Moto? Like what transferred from there to cycling? Well, so I mean, the two core areas really that we've been focused on are aerodynamics and then the composites and structural design. So a lot of the aerodynamic processes that we use to develop the F1 car and then we've applied to other industries, that they're the processes we've used to develop the bikes. Then um, the composites, so it's the materials themselves, and then how we approach defining the laminate, optimizing the laminate, and then putting that into production. BMC have very much been a partner on this. It's not been a, a one-way process. You know, BMC have got pretty good capabilities themselves with the Impact Lab. And um, you know, they've been absolutely key to putting our our ideas into production. And I think Stefan's probably cursed us at times because maybe there's been some more detail gone into it than he would have chosen. But um we we've we've got there and I think we're all pretty pleased with the product. You know, when I went down to Austin for the chance to ride the bike and meet the team and everything, one of the parts of the presentation was how what came out of Arbat's designs and lab and was presented at BMC is very different than, well, not very, but somewhat different than what ended up as the bike that we rode. And I'm curious, like, what was, you know, what were the key differences? And then, Stefan, maybe you can speak to, you know, why they changed or you know, did they, you know, yeah, why did they change? Yeah, I mean, overall, I think collaboration with, with externals is always a chance to to go a new ground, right? I think this is really something we, we wanted to be very open, especially at the beginning of the collaboration. There was uh, literally no, no limits just to also allow for a complete new playground of things. And uh, it's clear that we have... Uh, develop together and and conceptualized uh, ideas that um yeah some made it some didn't made it through i think in general we have just to understand that uh, the production of a bike is still i think very particular um it is using the same materials same technologies as for instance uh, what is used to make parts for formula one but then in the end everything is smaller thinner walls um production location is a different one so i think in general the production environment had quite significant impact on um what made it through in the end and and what not and things like uh, weight constraints uh, is always something that uh, we have to look at and also, the UCI rules, to be honest, at the very beginning, we did not constrain ourselves too much with uh, the UCI rule book. But then when we came closer to um, the product that we commercialize, it's clear that those things uh, play their role. Yeah, if I remember right, part of the presentation was saying that the original head tube design was a lot more bulbous or, or bigger or different in particular. You know, what about that was presented to you and then what had to change? Yeah, I think the, I would say there's also a part of design DNA. I think that we definitely wanna wanna maintain at BMC, and uh, we had design proposals that 
I think we were eager to challenge from a pure visual aspect. And of course, then we pushed in in this direction, but we never wanted to make a compromise in, in performance uh, either. So I think we just uh, developed together um, further solutions that made the bike look more like what we had in mind, but without compromising um, any performance. It's just additional loops that we we did together um, just because, yeah, for BMC, it's performance is key, but it's also very key um, how the bike looks, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, just kind of thinking about the track car that Rob mentioned. Yeah, I imagine, is this going to be a non-street legal? It's purely for track? Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. If we applied that to bikes, Stefan, could you see a market for something that's not UCI legal? Because I think the vast majority of cyclists don't race, but they want the fastest or lightest or coolest bike. Like, is is it worth going into production with something that's top level? You know, maybe you, you don't have to worry about UCI constraints. Is that a marketable item? I have my doubts. I mean, for sure, in triathlon, I think this is the most open uh, market when it comes to non-UCI and performance cycling. And of course, there we can see design that are, I would say, or have been a little bit more extreme. Um, but to be very honest, it's hard to see commercial success of for any of those. I mean, if we if we think about the uh, crazy Diamondback uh, triathlon bikes, Sipo uh, things with the very innovative uh, steering. While I think they were all, um, yeah, exploring in this in this field of non-constraints by by UCI, I, I do not see them commercially really being successful. And I think we we really, yeah, I think we were mindful of um, using the the scope and the rule book that we have. We also have to mention that the UCI uh, is a bit more open in some areas than five years ago so there was definitely a new playground uh, but we we decided consciously that we do not want to go into something that is uh, very extreme also because often those designs while they might come at the aerodynamic advantage usually they come at the quite significant uh, weight penalty which is something purely from a right field and bmc bikes are about right feel as well uh, a heavy bike is just never great to ride yeah the um the first collaboration or the, at least the most recent prior to this road bike was with the triathlon bike was there a, a lot of the the design and technology and kind of learnings from that that transferred over to the road bike or were the two applications very unique i think it certainly from the um from the triathlon bike and the speed machine we certainly knew where to look to get the aero gains in the first instance and so it was kind of it, it gave us a load of areas that we we knew we could focus on um and then that was where we started investigating and started um understanding the sort of sensitivities around different aspects of the, the frame geometry and from that we then um developed into what has become the team machine right on. i'm curious you know rob before we started recording you joked about if we were going to talk about uh breaking electronic brakes because we had just posted a story on, on bike rumor about wireless brakes and there's a outlet that did a really clever hack and put together their own system using basically remote control car parts 
But I know in the automotive industry, and particularly with EVs, that there is a big move toward drive-by-wire systems. Maybe not wireless, but certainly without cables and hoses and or you know mechanical connections between the steering and the thing. But for bikes, you know, there's I imagine it would be pretty hard to get around a mechanical connection to the steering. But braking does seem like that area where everybody's wondering, like, what's next? And I'm wondering if there's any, you know, first of all, like, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the F1 braking system works. And is there any transfer of that kind of technology to bikes that you see coming? Sure. So, I mean, the big thing on the F1 braking system is the the hydraulic pressure is still principally provided by the driver for the, certainly for the front axle, but then the rear axle, you need to be able to vary the brake pressure depending on how much energy recovery is going on. So where you have your hybrid system taking torque out of the rear axle. And so that was what necessitated the move to brake by wire on the rear axle. Um, In terms of applying it to bikes, I suppose I don't really see, personally, I don't see that that's a massive direction that I'd want to go in with bikes. Um, It doesn't feel like there's a huge benefit. And as soon as you have the rider not providing the power for the bikes, you've got to then have batteries on board to provide that power. Um, so I, I don't see that as being, I, I'm not sure what Stefan thinks, but I, I don't personally see that as being a big advantage for bikes. I think on passenger cars as well, you mentioned um, steer-by-wire and brake-by-wire. I think there's quite a packaging advantage on a passenger car for steer-by-wire, and that's probably the biggest thing that's driving the manufacturers in that direction. And again, I'm not sure that that really applies on bikes. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we need a, we need a very reliable uh, system. and. I think we all, as riders, uh, those days we have experience with running out of batteries. Uh, <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> not, n- not in a not in a dramatic way, but as I, if, if we project this onto brakes, I think uh, there needs to be another level of uh, charging if there are batteries involved. Which, uh, yeah, the, it has to work uh, all the time. And then this is more an area where, uh, yeah, Rob, I think you you can make the the connection to performance benefits that we could see from this. I, 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 I see already, I mean, we are uh, now getting ABS on bikes. I think that's definitely uh, one of the steps, but it's, I would say, still, uh, of course, uh, done with, the, let's say, as an add-on to the traditional system. To me, clearly, uh, to go to, to wireless or uh, by wire, I think we would need a significant performance uh, benefit Otherwise, I, yeah, I simply don't see it very practical. The thing that struck me about that hack that I saw was that it was on a full suspension bike and you, t- you all of a sudden added a whole lot of mass to the unsprung portion of it, and which is also shaking violently over every bump. And it's just, it scared me. But more so from a performance standpoint, you know, when I, I've talked to some people that were developing drive-by-wire systems at the IAA Mobility Show a couple of years ago, and one of the big challenges they had was dialing in the the feel, right? Like when you steer and, you know, when we brake and pull the lever, right? Like we're getting feedback from those systems to help us modulate what we're doing, modulate our inputs, right? And, I, and that to me, especially with a wireless system, seems like it would add a lot of complexity. But once you solve those algorithms, it seems like it would add a lot of weight to be able to make the levers feel, Right. It would add a lot of weight because you're going from the human providing the power for the brakes to having to store that energy and, and to deliver the power somewhere else. I mean, I think I think the um, the original article was very tongue in cheek, wasn't it? They did it as a bit of fun. It wasn't a sort of serious proposal. Um, 
nah. whether whether somebody takes it seriously in the future, we'll see. Yeah, we also see on the on the e-bikes actually where the drive is getting electrified or the drive support. How crucial it is the the human interface to the to the electric machine, right? I mean, to to have an e-bike. Uh, feeling natural while pedaling is not uh, very self-evident and i think it's even more true for for braking where you are directly linked to the environment through the traction of the tires and things like that so i could see that if it's combined with abs where somehow you i would say you already give up a bit on this direct feeling to the or direct uh, direct transmission to the to the ground I could see it much more than on a, let's say, a traditional uh, braking system because I, I also think the major struggle would be the human uh, machine interface. Yeah. So looking beyond the aerodynamics of the work that you guys did together, what was learned or, or thought about with, in terms of you know ride quality, right? Like because you know an aero bike is great, a lightweight bike is great, but if it rides like a piece of wood. Nobody's going to enjoy riding it. So how do you look at that perspective, you know, compliance or stiffness where it should or shouldn't be? So, I mean, Stefan, you're probably best off talking about this in that BMC set some very um, tough KPIs for us to achieve. And so they, they set the targets and then gave us the job of achieving them. But Stefan, do you want to talk about where those KPIs came from? Yeah, I mean, the KPIs, when you look at really numbers, uh, we have set them for weight, stiffness, then comfort in terms of, let's say, how much um, vertical compliance you get with a certain load. But I think here, the interesting aspect, and Tyler, when you talk about uh, riding like a piece of wood, I think we somehow also um, have in mind what we all call uh, damping, right? Kind of the dynamics of the material. and. This is clearly where, where composites um, as such already is, is a very good material. And then uh, we have a recipe at BMC that we use, I think, for quite a while. If you look at our frames, typically they are um, quite oversized. That means all the tubes have very thin uh, walls. And through those uh, thin wall uh, bodies, we, we get quite some absorption. Um, in the material and if you look at the, the recent designs we did um, yeah it's still quite voluminous uh, frames and in order to get them light of course we have to make the the walls uh, very thin but this definitely also helps in in terms of the dynamic behavior of the frame so if we see aerobikes that uh, ride like uh, yeah like a piece of wood typically they are quite thick in the wall thickness and uh yeah i think that's for me that's the one the, one of the main reasons why uh, what we have in mind as traditional aerobikes is not really a, a pleasure to ride did either of you look at alternate materials to add in you know like say kevlar or uh i mean i've seen flax fibers woven in or you know just different stuff you know mixing in graphene for some reason you know just seems like there's a, there's a lot of different stuff that can be added to carbon or used in conjunction with it. But curious if you looked at any of those. I'm struggling to think of anything particularly unusual we looked at. I mean, we, we certainly, we had a bit of a push towards more high modulus carbon than 
um, is typically used. Um, but um, and we have done things with Flax in the past, but not not for this application. It's the same for us. We have done uh, studies previously on on bicycle forks because this is rather easy to characterize in terms of damping uh, properties with all kind of uh, let's say non non carbon uh, composite materials. And while some of them were very uh, promising in terms of damping characteristics, as soon as you have the damping, it goes along with a significant loss of uh, stiffness. Actually, a loss of stiffness that we cannot afford with the set of KPIs that we have, for instance, on a high-performance uh, road racing bike. So, um, yeah, our our findings was that Yes, we could use flax to improve the damping, but the overall stiffness would suffer that much that it would not be in the range of where it makes sense. Or you'd be putting the weight up accordingly. Yeah, I imagine if you're losing stiffness there, you've got to reinforce with more carbon to counteract that. And then, so like if you did, if you just ended up adding more carbon to make it stiffer, do you kind of lose the benefits of the the damping in the first place? In theory, you could you could use more flax to get the stiffness, but you're just going up in you're just putting more and more material into it, and you, you'd still have a significant amount of damping, but your your weight would be going up enormously. What were you know as you went through this process, whether you know learnings on your own or individually, like what were maybe one or two things that surprised you or kind of unexpected results, if anything? Probably the biggest surprise for me, and this isn't really a a technical finding, but the biggest surprise for me was that the challenge of getting um, a laminate design where we've specified where the plies start and finish, the challenge of getting that translated into manufacturing um, on a large scale. Because, you know, we're used to probably smaller volume manufacturing runs, or we were in the past, where, you know, we, we can be making sort of handfuls of components and having a high amount of control over it. And passing that, so passing that laminate design over to BMC and getting it actually into manufacture was a pretty challenging thing to do and required quite a few iterations. Yeah, from my side, I, I would pick um, the fact that aerodynamic gains are probably sometimes not in the era where, as traditional bike designer, I was expecting them. Uh, this was definitely, I think, uh, something that, yeah, was very, very new for us and unexpected um then as i have a then as i have a composite background i think the what what rob mentioned uh going from let's say a computer calculated playbook into the production environment i was uh, always aware that uh, this is a step that has to be done uh, nevertheless we definitely have taken laminate design to a complete new level with this frame so this step um, i think has become a larger step than what we were used to in the past but i think it's the key it's the key of this uh, very performing frame today is that uh, we were really um, not taking shortcuts in simplifying plies uh, it's actually the opposite i think we put a lot of energy in having all the plies exactly cut to the dimensions we need to not have any excess, excess material, but also to ensure that every fiber sits precisely where it has to be, not only from a position, but also from a fiber orientation. So, yeah, you mentioned aerodynamics. What 
what was what about this project surprised you from an aerodynamic standpoint? Like, was there a part of the bike that you they touched that you didn't expect them to? For me, it was mainly around the the bottom bracket. Uh, how this also interacts with the chain stays and uh, those things. I think that's uh, maybe also because the new UCI rules actually they allow to do this uh, much more. But this was an area where I think uh, just by what I knew from previous projects, I did not expect such a dramatic uh, yeah, improvement. Yeah, it seems like a very turbulent area down there. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to drive train your feet, legs, cranks. What, like, in terms of overall gains, like, you know, any gains are good, but was that a significant area of improvement or was it just something about it that surprised you? It's definitely significant enough that we could see it in all the simulation uh, trending in the same direction. But then also, I think, yeah, it's contributing to what in the end we could measure as a total the total element it's still the center plane of the of the bike at the bb uh, actually sees still quite a clean flow i would say um yeah even if you think that we all pedal uh, very narrow i think that's still the the center plane especially under low your conditions uh, with the front wheel that far uh, to the front uh, definitely makes the air arriving there in a, in a quite uh, clean condition, which whatever you do is definitely uh, very, very significant. Right. Rob, were there any aerodynamic surprises that you found? Um, no, I think that that's, Stefan's covered the main one. Um, I think we were quite pleased with the, the spacing of the front forks. That was um, That's come out quite well aerodynamically. Um, I like joking with people that I say we can fit the gravel tires on the bike, but it's not really. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, that, that was the other one that, I, that springs to mind. Yeah, I was wondering if anybody was going to mention that because it is somewhat unique in the space. We're pretty wide set fork legs, you know, up around the crown in particular, uh, just to create more space. To me, it's a weird one. And maybe you can explain how this works. But, you know, you have at that point, the wheel is moving in reverse. You know, the, the top of the wheel is coming around, moving forward through that area where the wind from you moving is trying to go backwards. Like, is that... Does that extra space just allow those two kind of opposite forces to bypass each other? Or how does that actually improve the situation? I think it was, yeah, kind of decoupling the two from memory. Yeah, and, uh, and there is one one more thing that uh, I think is, I mean, what you mentioned is, I think is exactly uh, the thing in the interaction with the wheel. But what we also uh, realized, uh, no matter if it's the speed machine or the T machine R, is that uh, when we are able to uh, have the fork crown, um, I think, going out a bit more aggressive, it allows us to control the flow behind the fork crown much better and then also in the interaction with the down tube. So that's definitely a very, very interesting um, thing, something you can also see on the on the new track bike for instance that we uh, we developed uh, so yeah it's those two things that motivated us to go to wider uh, wider fork legs what was interesting to me and, and actually unexpected is that i always thought we would have a big fight uh, to get or maintain the fork stiffness uh, which actually uh, it is the opposite the t machine r fork is the 
laterally stiffest fork we have ever made. Um, and it definitely contributes to the, the precision of the steering of the bike. Cool. So when you have a model like this, which I should say, just so I don't forget to add this at some point that I've, I've ridden the bike and you know, even when we were in Austin on the last day, I just kind of had my own time and took it around on a lot of the kind of dirt gravel paths. So it does work as a, a light duty gravel bike that come in stock. But it was what really surprised me is that for a bike that's primarily high mod carbon and designed to be a stiff racing machine, that it didn't just beat me up on those paths. It was actually quite pleasant to ride, you know, on, on less than ideal tarmac, especially, you know, going off of riding on the F1 track in Austin, where it was like, you know, might as well have been riding on glass for all intents and purposes, you know, grippy glass. So when you when you launch a model like this, you know, clearly you've put a lot of R&D into it. I imagine working with RBAT costs a pretty penny. How long will you keep this model on the line before you start to introduce an, a, the next generation of it? I think we are pretty consistent at BMC that all our bikes, they have a life cycle of uh, three to four years, except for the ones that are a bit more uh, exotic, exhaust, like a track bike. Typically there is much longer, but I think whatever is, uh, is relevant, uh, we are targeting three to four years. And uh, I think the way we are, we are set up now, uh, it's, yeah, I think we are convinced that this bike is it's gonna last uh, quite a while. Also, with the feedback we have from the uh, two-door pro team, they are super excited about the bike. Um, of course, we are continuously developing. I mean, developing such a bike is not a matter of one year. It's more two to three years. So it's very clear that somehow we have uh, one season now of uh, gathering all the feedback, learning also, reorientating ourselves, what we want to improve, what we want to change. And then it's uh, bang on to start the next uh, project. Yeah. Yeah. Never ending cycle. So when you start on the next one, if you haven't already, after a collaboration like this, you know, once you start changing a little thing here, a little thing there, does a lot of the benefit and, and the learnings from working with Arbat start to fall away or are you able to kind of keep those learnings and then just make tweaks that build on top of that i would say it's a mix of both i mean some learnings i think they are pretty universal i would say but then again they only shine if you go all the way to the last uh, detail i mean uh, for instance on the on the laminate design i think yeah we learned we learned how to work with the with the materials we use today, but uh, if we do not uh, go all the way and are really, um, yeah, I think investing in, in the details, then it might be that what we learned is not relevant anymore. So uh, somehow what I want to say is that, of course, you get a set of things you know, but you always have to validate that it is still true in the in the different context i mean i mentioned for instance the the learnings that go along with the new uci rules this is something where the context uh, changed so what was true 10 years ago might not automatically be true under the new rules so it's, it's i think it's a continuous process of challenging also the 
the status quo and uh, in, in such a way also be open for uh, yeah for new things that your initial feeling would tell you uh, no this doesn't work because it was not working in the past i mean i don't know rob how how you i think you also have many of those challenges in in f1 all the time right that somehow you think uh, now we have it but how do you move from there <laughs> yeah i'd hope that um the, the team machine r has given you a sort of step change in performance and yeah i think then it's 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 a big effort to make a big step from there, but I'd hope it's also um, hard to lose that performance in a future iteration. Um, yeah, you sure have to be careful, and you know, don't, don't get driven down, don't get driven down the line of massively simplifying the laminate, for example, because I think you'd find that um, you'd quickly you'd quickly compromise, and that's that's what you need to avoid. Last question, uh, Stefan. Or Rob, I'm curious what your take with this on this would be too. But like, for what you learned, do you think any of that can transfer to the mountain bike side? Well, I'd love to find out because I mean <laughs> that's where my that's where my personal passion really lies. Um, I think um, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that aerodynamics is so so significant on the mountain bikes because of the average speed being so much lower. Um, you know, the time you spend above 30 kph on a mountain bike is not huge um whereas the road bikes out there quite a lot um i think the structural analysis and the weight saving potentially there's some benefit to be had my only the reason i say potentially rather than guaranteed is i'm aware that there's an awful lot of um abuse cases involved when you're designing a mountain bike and i suspect you find that quite quickly the uh the case of the rock hitting the frame and not going through the frame dominates rather than being able to optimize down to the nth degree. Yeah. Yeah. My, my initial reaction actually to the question uh, was no, there's nothing, but uh, Rob <laughs> gave me some, uh, some time by answering to, to, to think more. I, I really think if there are things that translate into, into mountain bike, it's more, uh, let's say about the process of, how to look at things uh, then especially i think you always learn about composites uh, even if it's uh, for instance as rob mentioned i think the optimization case is more towards something that is um, more strong rather than stiff um, the way you get to the more strong as a methodology i think is very comparable to what we have what we have done to to get to the kpis that are relevant on a road bike so process wise and and how to attack uh, certain problems i think there's a lot that can transfer if it's really a one-to-one -one, um i would say mountain bikes are quite different actually so could you just out of curiosity could you take the laminate schedule you know and apply shapes and directions and all that of the what you learned here and applied here, and if you replace the high mod with a mid mod or standard modulus, would you achieve a similar thing but with a stronger bike, or is it just completely different when you change the type of fibers you're using? I think in theory that would, in theory you you would get that change in property, but I don't think in practice you'd actually want to do that. Um, and I think you know you'd end up if we were doing a mountain bike, you'd start with a clean sheet. You'd be using very much the same methodology in terms of the the um, finite element, element analysis tools um, to define the laminate 
and you probably find some of the details where you've worked out how to best cut the pliers around the bottom bracket or cut the pliers around the head tube you know the details might might be beneficial from to have the learnings from one project to feed into another but i think the the overall laminate i think would probably be very different i would say from a from a vehicle design perspective it's quite different i mean really on the road bike what we all like about road bikes is this very direct uh, contact between us the athlete and uh, the contact on the on the ground and Mountain bikes, uh, just inherently by the bigger tires and, and the loss in damping and transmission you have already just by the tire, but then also the suspension. I think the, the vehicle design in terms of where you, where you place uh, stiffness and what is the level of stiffness you, you want to have, it's quite, uh, quite different, I would say. So what I want to say is, if if we would make let's say a, a hardtail or a cross country uh, mountain bike fully out of high modulus, I do not think a frame like that would shine as much compared to a frame that is made out of standard modulus. Just because in the whole uh, transmission and stiffness chain, the frame plays a much smaller role on the mountain bike side. All right, well, I appreciate the info and the intel, and appreciate you guys' time. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.